You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 63, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we talk about the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's expert is Dr. Richard Menger, Chief of Complex Spine Surgery, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery, and Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of South Alabama. Dr. Menger finished his neurosurgery residency in 2018 at LSU after receiving his MD at Georgetown Medical School. He completed a fellowship in pediatric complex spine at LSU before beginning his current position. Oh, and he also earned a Master's of Public Administration at the Kennedy School of Government during his research year in residency. Dr. Menger is also the author of the textbook, Economics, Business, Policy of Neurosurgery. Today's discussion is about hospitals. Namely, what does it mean to be a nonprofit? Over half of hospitals in the United States are not-for-profit, but does that mean they look differently from for-profit institutions? Do they have competitive advantages for their tax status? What does it mean for patients, doctors, and the country? We hear all the time about how the profit motive doesn't belong in medicine, but does it? We will get into that as we review Dr. Menger's article from FEE, the Foundation of Economic Education, titled Nonprofit Hospitals Are Making a Killing. The articles mentioned today and the links to Dr. Menger's LinkedIn profile and previous episodes can be found at theparadox.com slash 063, and that's Paradox with a CS. If you haven't yet done so, be sure to subscribe to the show now on your favorite podcast player. Finally, an unsolicited ad, I'd like to thank my good friend Ed Spires of madesimply.com. He and his team developed my wife's website for her new podcast, Losing a Child, Always Andy's Mom. If you need a clean website built at a very affordable rate, contact Ed at ed at madesimply.com. You can check out his work at his website, madesimply.com. Now let's begin my discussion with Dr. Richard Menger about whether nonprofit hospitals are making a killing. Enjoy. Welcome. I'm here with Dr. Richard Menger. He's a neurosurgeon who's just freshly minted out of fellowship. He's at the University of South Alabama. Dr. Menger, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Really uh, excited to be on. Yeah, well, I've, like I was just talking before here, I've really enjoyed reading a lot of your pieces. Uh, and the one we're talking, we're going to talk about two pieces specifically today at the, at FEE, which is the Foundation for Economic Education. Um, and it relates to healthcare. And I've done an episode sort of on this before, but I really want to get into a little bit more detail. And I think you have the, I'm hoping you have a lot more of the, the policy and certainly the, the numbers to uh, go into more depth. And what I want to talk about is hospitals. And so to kind of lay the groundwork for our audience, 
there are sort of two main sort of hospital systems you might have. I mean, I think the, the days of the community county hospital are pretty much gone. The charity hospital is pretty much has pretty much disappeared in this country. I think there are private charity hospital or Catholic hospital systems, but it's a system. Like if you look at the Trinity network, it's you know, nationwide. And so it's a very large corporate, but it has um, certainly has certain core provisions and, uh, and sort of things that it, that it holds important, like, you know, not performing abortions for instance, other facilities or something like that, or not sterile elective sterilizations. But essentially you have these sort of two hospital sort of systems. You have the for-profit systems and then you have the nonprofit systems. And so I think, why don't you give a little background and what the difference is between them and maybe what the similarities are, if you could. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. So I think, you know, the, the connotation that is, uh, I think somewhat intentionally uh, driven for the non-for-profit hospital is the charity hospital, but, but the, the safety net hospital, the hospital that sort of helps society move forward. And, and I think that the, um, you know, connotation for the for-profit, the for-profit hospital is much more, you know, um, new technology, um, uh, making money, shareholders, investors, and I think, um, you know, the data and the reality on that is that that's just not the case. Um, you know, I think uh, the, the non-for-profit hospitals have direct tax incentives. You know, they're, they're treated like a, um, you know, traditional non-profit entity, whether it be a think tank or uh, a strict charity, in the sense that they're not paying federal, state, and, and other real estate type taxes for what they have. Um, and, and while for-profit hospitals are, but, um, you know, the unbelievable report that was kind of the nidus uh, through FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education, that John Littmore sent, sent my way from Open the Books that just showed the unbelievable and incredible profits, essentially, that these non-profit hospitals were making, and they skyrocketed um, you know, just dramatically more than the for-profit entities. And, you know, my, my, the, the first thing, and there's nothing inherently wrong in my sort of view that, that if someone's doing good work, they can be properly compensated. And, and if the hospital system is doing good work, they would be properly compensated. But I think that there's a lot of sort of manipulation of the system in order to help these so-called, you know, non-profit hospitals generate large amounts of income for their leadership and for their um, institution. So I think the important designation is that, you know, when we look at hospitals like the nonprofit or the, the for-profit, I think the vision people have is that the, the, not, the not-for-profit hospitals are like, a, you know, they rely on donations from, uh, from the community, philanthropists, some sort of significant state funding, because if it weren't for that, there's just no way they could get by. They're just kind of scraping by. And the for-profit hospitals, you know, they've got like the Monopoly man with right his monocle and and they're rubbing their hands all the time. But the reality is, I think, is that they're pretty similar as far as if you looked at it, you probably would know the difference. And and do you have a feel even for the, the numbers of profit versus non-profit hospitals? I mean, my impression is that most are non-profit. Yeah, most, most are non-profit and almost all that are that are in the top 10 in terms of so-called profits that they're making are non-profit hospitals. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's conglomerate type systems that, um, you know, sort of benefit from this. So, you know, you have, 
uh, you, you had mentioned that, you know, you take the, the, the data in front of me you know, it's for, for partners healthcare, which is essentially a conglomerate entity of the, you know, the Harvard hospital systems in Massachusetts, you know, they're receiving a lot of federal and state money um, to help them as a nonprofit entity. Uh, you know, they received $25 million from the state in payments, $907 million in federal reimbursement for their services. Um, but again, they're not paying the sort of, you know, full tax picture. And it, it becomes very challenging for me to sort of make sense of that um, on, on the flip side when there's very little in terms of price transparency for for what they're, what they're providing. And... Uh, I think that's one of the biggest sort of challenges in this in this space is you have a very complicated system, you have a lot of lobbying entities into this uh, space, and, and and you don't really know exactly what everything costs, but you, you see that the CEO is making five million dollars a year, sort of exploiting a a, a tax uh, structure, and I think that's a challenging dynamic to navigate for for healthcare in 2019. Yeah, I mean, I I guess the I guess one of the things to look at is when you look at the nonprofit hospitals, I feel like it, it is not like this. It doesn't feel like the Salvation Army to me. You know, it, it feels like a, a, a there's if there was a different classification of not for profit, that would be, you know, what what hospital systems today should be, because they certainly don't feel like they're they're a charity. I mean, I know that they do work for the underserved. They take care of, you know, the, the downtrodden and, and but um it, it just feels a lot different. And I don't know if that's because I'm in, within, you know, basically everywhere you work in medicine is within one of these systems, but they certainly don't feel like, they don't feel like a charity. Yeah. I, I, I completely agree. I, I don't think they're uh, even pretending anymore to, to, to be a charity. I mean, looking at the data and the open book support and other sources, it, the, the non-for-profit hospitals that are making money are larger hospitals in urban areas that actually don't have residents or medical students. There's obviously the big conglomerates that we just kind of mentioned that 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 fought at, but you know those are the, the hospital systems that you wouldn't necessarily. You know, these hospital systems are looking to sort of increase their their payer mix just in the same way that any for-profit hospital system is. Nobody is fighting over the the uninsured patient. Who has a uh, you know prolonged <laughs> disease course that doesn't have a high uh, procedure-driven CPT diagnosis? Right? These hospitals, just like you know the for-profit hospitals, are are searching for the same insured pool of patients, and um, I think they're they're just kind of using their non-for-profit status to maximize their sort of um, you know protection in this in this space through uh, through a tax structure. So what is what is the implication of someone the of a hospital system that's not for profit? What difference does it make? Why should I, if I'm you know Joe Cube taxpayer in in some city, why should I care if the hospital is not for profit versus a for profit entity? Yeah, I, for for me, um, I think if you're if you're so if you're a patient, I think you're going to go where you know you think you're going to get the best care. And right. it, I mean, it, the reality is these not-for-profit systems in some of these cities. I mean, the partners' healthcare. I don't mean to. Pick, I don't mean to pick them. I mean, they're just kind of a one of the bigger fish in the sea. They treat one third of the patients in Boston. 
right? Either directly wow. or indirectly. I mean, they don't. The, the, let me be very clear. The physicians and providers in their hospitals treat one-third of the patients in Boston. But I mean, <laughs> that's a lot of market power. That's a lot of sort of, you know, infrastructure, a lot of, um, you know, sort of capture of patients. And, you know, it's hard to, to sort of ignore that, um, you know, when, when you're looking at a, at a hospital. For, for me, you know, if I was the consumer, and this is one of the main points of my article, is that if I was a consumer who, who could truly um, shop around and look and have a discussion, I would want to see what the outcome is and what the price transparency is, what I'm paying for. And I, I, there are some obviously innovative sort of uh, outliers in this in this uh, arena, but by and large, that's just not not what you what you sort of see when you're the healthcare consumer. Um, some people shop by what's in their insurance network. Some people shop by surgeon brand and name. Some people shop by institution brand and name. But for me, I, I would say, okay, you know, I have this disease. What are objective markers, and who can provide the best outcome for that? Yeah. And the, the problem, of course, you know, I've talked about this in every show. It's really difficult to, for someone who is the lay public to get data that's reliable, that is relatable to them, to them, you know, and, and so you, you really have to rely on other people who are your other, you know, your primary care physician or word of mouth and things like that, to, as you would, I think, for most businesses, right? I mean, I think one could have a car, a car mechanic and could have, could state, you know, how often you fix cars, you know, well, but it's going to be really hard for, uh, I for hard to trust the transparency and also you know whatever your whatever's wrong with your car it might be totally different something that they don't deal with very often and so anyway I I always think the it's tough to understand you know to compare hospital systems is very difficult but I think uh, to the point about the taxes it seems like uh, the one the one reason you're nonprofit is the one huge advantage of course that you don't pay any taxes like you said federal state or local and that could be significant significant amounts of revenue from a from a you know local property tax standpoint and I don't know what it's like in New York or Massachusetts but most places they have lots of property tax and so those communities are are you know giving up tax revenue I guess for lack of a better I'm not I don't like to think that the communities owed that those taxes <laughs> but um, but at least they're paying a different tax rate than other businesses in town and and especially when you go from a for-profit to a non-profit, let's say a regular doctor's office, right? And now suddenly they become part of the non-profit system. Mm-hmm. I mean, their clinic is now changes status, right? And so you take it off the tax rolls for the, for the community. I mean, how mm-hmm. does, how does that help or hurt other businesses or, at, or the hospitals itself? Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, there's about 60% of the hospitals are, are non-profit hospitals in the United States. You know, it's the majority of, uh, you know, I think it is the norm to, to, to be in a nonprofit sort of direction. I, I mean, I think these communities, realistically, it's a resource for the community, right? And I think also, too, it is a job yeah. creation for the community. I mean, we're at a residency at LSU, one of the main generators for, you know, sort of employment in the area was, was a healthcare and almost a, a sort of a travel destination for a large part of the rural state was to that area to get healthcare. And I think that you know, politicians understand that they need um, those healthcare entities to, to, you know, provide care for their for their citizens and for their, their you know, constituents. And um, I, I think that there, that there's a reality of, of just the economic imprint that those um, employers, literally, you know, as an employer, has to the state, to the region, and to the area. Sure. 
I mean, I, I guess you could argue too, though, that if I'm a family practice physician, I'm an independent physician, I'm paying property taxes, I'm paying, you know, state, federal taxes or whatever, uh, for my, my business business. Right. Mm -hmm. And now I get bought out by a nonprofit hospital system because they are you know increasing their network of physicians and whatever. And now my, my business, which hasn't moved, it's exactly the same physical presence oftentimes, mm -hmm. but now it's tax designation has changed. And mm -hmm. so I'm providing just as many jobs as I was before, but now I'm not, I'm not contributing to uh, the local, I mean, you know, all businesses contribute to the local economy. It's so it's not, there's nothing unique about healthcare. I mean, I guess it's a different type of job, but it essentially all these businesses, you know, produce jobs and economic activity, et cetera, et cetera. So it, it seems like a, a benefit that is questionable as far as it, how much, is it that much, you know, better to have, um, you know, healthcare jobs than other jobs that you're going to say, we're going to forego all our tax, our tax revenue. And then additionally, you know, if we're going to give all that up, what do we get in, resp in response, which I think is what you were referring to earlier with the tech, with the transparency of the prices, right? You're sort of giving away all this stuff to these entities and then you're kind of not getting any, any sort of right. information about what they're doing. Right. I, I couldn't agree. I, I completely agree with what you're saying in terms of, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, it, I, the, the, reality is in my sort of view of this, you know, the, the AHA, which is the American Hospital Association, which is the nonprofit and for-profit hospital systems sort of linked together in, in their lobbying activities, you know, it's $24 million in 2018. Right? That, 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 I mean, that, that is an astronomical amount of money for their sort of, you know, arm to preserve, I'm sure, amongst other things, some of these nonprofit considerations that they're having. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of the, the reality we, we kind of deal with. I mean, and to put this in a frame of reference, I think, um, you know, you, you, your colleagues in, in anesthesia are the number one, we put out a paper in our neurosurgery journal um, last year, and the number one donating specialty of medicine is anesthesiology, and it's $4 million a year. So, um, you know, just seeing that kind of, uh, you know, imprint that they have absolutely influences decisions and influences how things are going to be be bought up. I think my, my biggest kind of, um, I think if you were to poll, and I don't have data for this, but I think if you were to poll the, the, the sort of average patient and they hear nonprofit, they're thinking of that charity care and doing the right thing and ignoring the bottom line. And I think a lot of Americans would be really, really shocked. And, and, and I mean, this is why some of this stuff is winding up in the Wall Street Journal and Washington Post, because people are, are, are relatively shocked that a CEO of a nonprofit hospital is making $21 million. And I think that's yeah. sort of the, the biggest sort of optics issue of what's going on is it, it, it's not just happening, you know, that's not happening in for-profit hospitals, but it is to a certain extent, but it's happening in these so-called, you know, nonprofit do-good sort of mentality hospitals. Yeah, I mean, a lot of Rahas are they, they're either um, university systems, like I think probably that one you're talking about in Boston is probably related is associated with Harvard, right? Mm -hmm. So that'd be, yeah. you know, and we have University of Michigan, and Michigan, obviously, and um, it, yeah, it's uh, it seems like I, on some level, I I don't want uh, I don't want charities to operate like charities, like they can't possibly work in the market, they don't work efficiently, they're not uh, they don't have incentives to sort of do things properly and to you know, use resources wisely that, so you want them to be sort of corporate and in the, you want them to be managed properly. And so maybe those salaries are 
completely justified because if as long as you look, view it as it's no different than any other you know for profit system, that they should still operate with the same sort of parameters as far as you know making making good decisions financially, being good stewards of their resources and those sorts of things, and to not just like throw it away willy nilly. Sure. <laughs> um, do you, a lot of that money that is uh, that you were talking about earlier with like nine hundred plus million dollars that are uh, from the was it nine hundred million dollars just to that one health system in, in Boston Partners Care in mm-hmm. is that are those like direct subsidies above and beyond what they would what they have in tax savings or is that including the fact that they're not paying the taxes? No, that that's their their Medicare reimbursement. That, that that's how much the federal government's paying them. They're they're <laughs> they're you know my main my main sort of. Um, you know, stick with that is that they're providing they're providing care. They're receiving sort of tax benefits for this, but no one still knows how much it costs. And right. uh, you, know, you know, no one really is is showing that information. You know, intentionally so, uh, and no one is really doing that. And, and and also, no one's really disclosing the real prices the actual patients pay. So, um, in that open the books. Um, sort of document that we use to, to write the, the article for, for FDE uh, that you're referencing, you know, only there's like 82 non-for-profit hospitals that are, are, are listed in that in, in terms of making a large amount of money. And only uh, like 17% of them disclose the amount of revenue that they got from Medicare and Medicaid, and none of them show the actual cost. So, you know, really? yeah, they are not, um, you know, sort of being transparent. And there's no there's no reason for them to be, right? If they can, if, you know, if if they, there's not if, if they are acting in the best interest of their patients, if they are acting in the best interest of of service, they are acting in the best interest of the highest ideals of what one would in America would think is a non for profit. It's very different than the actual you know sort of actions that are taking place. Yeah, that's it. that's very interesting. It, and you it actually makes you wonder why the seventeen percent reported. <laughs> it's so right, right? Like, if there's, I mean, if there's not any requirement, it's, uh, it it's interesting that you'd even say how much you're getting. Unless, although it's perhaps maybe those are state laws too. I mean, some state laws, very, you know, may make it so you have to publicly disclose your revenue sources or something like that if you got it. I mean, I I'm just guessing. I'm speculating completely, but. Um, so what is the relationship between nonprofits and pro- uh, nonprofit hospitals and physicians and how, how have things changed since let's say the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare went into place? I mean, how, how have nonprofit hospitals changed and since the, the adoption of that law, what was it 2010 or something like that? Right. Sure. I, I mean, for me, the, the biggest thing is, is gotta be uh, consolidation. The amount yeah. of consolidation happening in hospitals um, is, is incredible. And, and so, you know, to be very clear, it's not, it's not all negative, right? There's some, there's some failing hospitals that need better infrastructure. There's a hub and spoke model, all that. There are, there are benefits to that, but they, they are significantly, you know, they are buying up or, um, you know, other hospitals. They are buying up, you know, primary care physicians in order to feed referrals to people in their system that are surgeons and, um, you know, that tend to be higher, um, you know, RVU and, and reimbursement models. And, and, you know, they're also buying up physician practices. Uh, you know, their argument is that it reduces duplication of clinical services. It can, you know, streamline care. And, you know, the reality is, um, you know, it's also 
increase the, the average price of hospital services. It's just the market powers and economics um, argument. But I mean, I have seen that un, I mean, like in, in you're reading that in papers and in health affairs, I mean, you're reading that in, all, you know, in some of the mainstream press, but you know, I'm really, and I'm sure you are really seeing that on the ground. And especially, I mean, I saw one aspect of that at Louisiana with, with a big healthcare structure and a big healthcare infrastructure kind of taking over portions of the geographic area. And then in New York, um, or did fellowship, you know, it's a very, very challenging, very, very aggressive market. And, and you see this really happening. How do how do you see the moral hazard coming to Why don't you describe what moral hazard is and then how that sort of plays into the nonprofit hospitals? Yeah, I, I you know, moral hazard, um, Essentially, you're taking risks that you normally wouldn't take or behaving differently um, because they're insulated from the cost of something. So in my mind, it's kind of there is a, a distance between the person who is paying for a benefit and distance uh, to the person who is receiving uh, the benefit. So, you know, that's the sort of the challenge with a, a central planning apparatus to, to healthcare delivery. It's a challenge with Medicare. Um, this sort of generational taxation, and it's not your sort of money that's that's being used to treat uh, you. And, and that is a really, really big challenge in, in how people behave around healthcare. It's the idea to me that, you know, you're sort of, um, you know, you have insurance, you're entitled to it, so you're going to maximize every utilization, um, and the providers is you know, uh, synchronously not, not incentivized to sort of control their costs because the patient's not an active um, consumer. So, you know, people alter their behavior when they don't have to pay for something. So, you know, I think the hospital systems, um, you know, they're aware of this in the sense that, you know, <laughs> they are, they have a, a cohort of patients who are going to have a sort of a, you know, the, the insured patient is going to have a little bit of a, a blanker check than somebody who is going to be price conscious. So they're not necessarily going to care so much about the nitty-gritty of how much something costs if it's covered by their health care insurer. So if they can capture that insured patient into their network, if they can capture that patient into their hospital system, it can be a real revenue generator for them without the patient being sort of cost-conscious. Cost, uh, and I think that that is, that is one of, in my sort of, you know, understanding of economics and a lot of work that I've sort of done in this space, I see that as one of the biggest challenges with uh, U.S. healthcare in 2019. Yeah, I mean, you just have basically people trying to maximize the return for their premiums. And, you know, once you have the deductible, you're incentivized to do as much stuff as you can. And the people who are providing the care are more than happy <laughs> to provide it because they're getting paid anyway. Um that kind of just leads into the next paper. You wrote, you'd written in February um, an article on why you, I think it was titled "Why the Feds Will Eventually Force Docs into Government and Healthcare," which is a provocative title. Uh, and I, I guess you know, this is the question I always get. I got the show. I've, this is going to be episode sixty-three. So all the show notes and to find out more about Dr. Menger, you can go to theparadox.com/slash zero sixty-three. But the question I always get from people in the OR or you know friends or whatever is. So how do we fix it? <laughs> you know, how we got to this point where these large healthcare systems are buying up physicians. So you you have it from the physician standpoint where they're they're like, how do I 
get more autonomy? How do I am able to practice the way I want to? Uh, and then you have people who are like, well, how are you going to just, how do you fix healthcare so it's not so expensive? Because the Affordable Care Act, the number one reason it was so popular when it passed is that it was going to con- was going to slow down the rate of healthcare expenses. And I think it's accelerated when you about it by every measure. It looks like it's more expensive now to get care than it, than before. And whether that's providing insurance to yourself or whether it's the actual the cost of care, you know, when with all the people who are end up paying for it. So what's I guess how does that how do you f- fix that? And you know, this may be the impossible question because <laughs> I've tried answers myself. Uh, but you know, like how do you see that fixing? Or you can even just talk about the current proposals because I think whether it's Republicans or Democrats, there aren't really any proposals that are looking to fix this sort of problem. And and then how does that sort of dovetail? This is a 25-point question here, but right. how does that dovetail then again into how, why you think that's going to force physicians into sort of certain pathways? Sure. So I'll kind of take take a small bite out of this. Um, you know, I think the first thing in that article that you were kind enough to, to mention is, again, through, uh, you know, Foundation for Economic Education. And, and I was looking... You know, this is when um, we sort of first saw the, the, the imprints, the, the um, you know, Camilla Harris after Bernie Sanders and, you know, saying Medicare for all. And, you know, the, the idea that we needed one single payer and, and Camilla Harris had just gotten on, uh, you know, TV and said that, uh, you know, private insurance is the thing of the, the past. And, and wouldn't it be nice to not have those prior authorization headaches and we should outlaw private insurance? And, uh, you know, there was an upcry in all the mainstream media, you know, about how are you going to forcibly remove private property from the, you know, 180 million Americans who have private health care insurance. Um, And and my article says, yeah, you know, that's a real, like, that is a a real logistical concern. I mean, Vermont tried to do a single payer, and if it's going to work anywhere in theory, it'll work there, and it's hard. You know, that's that's a real argument to have. My argument was also, like, well, what are you going to do with with physicians? Um, are, yeah. are, are are you going to force them to participate in this new system? Are they going to become now sort of um, state uh, employees? Are they going to be a GS, uh, you know, government uh, type of employee? Um, and how are you going to physically do this? And are, are you sincerely not sort of at least um, realistically considering that there's going to be some sort of two-tier mechanism. And then I sort of, uh, you know, went after the, some of the, the, the um, historical precedents that, that do indicate that, um, you know, sort of the, the people prescribing these sort of healthcare care um, policies tend to, to have a, a different set of standards for themselves. And, um, you know, it's just the, the real concern of what are you going to do with physicians that don't want to participate in this? What are you going to do if they don't agree with some aspect of what you're, you know, going to do? And then how are you going to to mandate their participation? Because without the physician, then there's going to be no sort of unified healthcare apparatus. And I kind of pointed some of the data that, medic, you know, in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, and physician acceptance rates of those payments. Um, so that, that was kind of my first, you know, the kind of the first thing to answer your question is, you know, it, it's a very challenging logistical issue for what they want to uh, accomplish, the, the people that are putting those ideas forth. Um, you know, the, the, right. the other half of your question is a little bit heavier, but I, I think that, um, you know, for, for me, um, if you actually look, um, you, you know, if you, if you take a snapshot of people who are kind of matching to specialties, some of the 
two hardest specialties of plastic surgery and dermatology. There's there's a variety of reasons for that, and and, and one of them, I, I mean, it has to be, you know, there's 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 an aspect of that not covered by insurance, right? And the cosmetic surgery data, I think, to me is fascinating, right? I mean, there's no, as far as I know, and as far as I'm aware, there's no healthcare um, uh, insurance that covers cosmetic surgery, and um, you know th that data is, you know, the the cost of that has gone down 68 percent. You know, um, the inflation is 68 percent less than what it's been for the rest of medicine, right? Because there needs to be some sort of accountability for, for outcomes and costs when the person's actually shopping for it. So obviously okay. that, no, that, that doesn't work for, that obviously doesn't work for a lot of medicine, but it gives some insight that, you know, obviously there are market failures in healthcare, but we need to sort of empower the patient as best as possible to be a consumer in the, in the limited way that they can realistically be. And I think the first thing that comes with that is, um, you know, price and outcome transparency. Outcome transparency much harder to find r real outcomes that matter. And a lot of you know, yeah. very, very, um, you know, have a very long conversation about what that means and the outcomes for that, and you know, the implications for that. But you know, the but really, um, you know, the, the price transparency. It, it would be like going to a restaurant and you know, not knowing how much something costs. And being okay with that time and time and time again, and you know, I, I think that's that would be a big part of the the, the piece is, is mandating price transparency and looking to create that. Um, and then the other thing, which would probably be much more controversial, but you know, um, you know, I, I again on the idea of reducing moral hazard and and sort of you know understanding there are market failures and finding a way for people to sort of take ownership and, and power of the decisions that they make and, and where and why they want to spend certain money in certain ways. And I, I find it interesting, at least in 2019, that our healthcare insurance is largely still in the private sector employer-based. Um, there's favorability yeah. for that. Absolutely. That, you know, to me, that's a vestigial sort of origin of of you know wage control in the 1940s and we don't look right. to amazon we don't look to you know whoever you are for home depot we don't look for them to take care of your housing we don't look for them to take care of your car and transportation in most cases right so why are we all of a sudden linking these employer-based insurances well the unions love it and so does the chamber of commerce right because they get a huge tax incentive and a huge tax break for it and I feel like that really manipulates and, and really sort of changes the system of delivery and perverses it a little bit. And I think that that, you know, in, in maybe giving people their money back and having them put it in different spots that they want uh, will bring more sensitivity to to the healthcare delivery system. Yeah, no, I I agree with everything you said. And I think um, it's very interesting. You know, it's base, it, I feel like the employer-based coverage is really just an artifact of the tax code, right? If you had, yeah. if you said, you know, anyone could get their insurance and you, and that you could pay with pre-tax dollars, suddenly it removes the, you know, the necessity of having a job <laughs> to have insurance for one right. thing to lower your cost by, you know, whatever it is, 33% or whatever your tax bracket is. Um, and I think, you know, it's important to point out too, that we, we have markets in medicine. They're very distorted. They're they are so far from what when anyone would consider or even question being a free market, 
you have to really look hard to find a free market system anywhere within medicine. I mean, outside of, like you mentioned, a couple of cosmetic procedures, although even plastic surgeons, they do reconstructive surgeries and all kinds of things that are, involve insurance too. Uh, you know, the ophthalmologist maybe with their, their LASIK surgery, but outside of that, there's, it's really hard finding any sort of market, you know, because very little people make their consumer decisions. I mean, there are HSAs, but it's what, just a couple percent of the market. Uh, And I I also find interesting that people are surprised that a lot of physicians are in favor of a single payer too, because from an administrative burden, for one thing, I don't think physicians think through things all the way. And so just because you're an expert at medicine doesn't mean you're an expert at other things (laughs) think things through any more than you expect your lawyer to be a really great mechanic or mechanic to be really great at practicing law, you know, Uh, to expect that physicians would understand healthcare policy really well uh, if they don't really spend a lot of time thinking or delving into it. Is, so they're not, I can see why they would be tricked, maybe it's a little strong word, but it might be accurate in thinking that a lot of their problems that they have in medicine would go away with a healthcare system that is like a Medicare for all or a single payer system. Like, oh, there wouldn't be prioritizations, there wouldn't be you know, sort of this, that, or the other thing, these, these headaches I have, the, the charting would be a lot easier, submission for bills. When every experience with any sort of government-run process or any sort of top-down bureaucratic process, it doesn't even have to be from the government, is the complete opposite, right? So I don't know why why physicians are in favor of that, but a tremendous percentage of physicians really think a single payer is not a bad idea. I don't think it's, I think it's probably close to 50%. I mean, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but I think it's about that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, mean, I can see, I can see that, that, you know, where you fall into that. And I, I think too, you know, the physician by and large, maybe a, a, a still sort of delusional, but you know, are, are, a lot of people genuinely want to help people and the system is genuinely oh, yeah. frustrating. And that just, it, Medicare for all, it, it, it's a, a campaign buzzword and, and those things stick, right? They, they, they sort of work in people's minds as an availability heuristic. And, and you know, that, that just makes sense. I, I think my concern, and, and, and I don't want to speak for you, but it sounds, you know, very similar. Having a right to healthcare does not guarantee access to a limited resource. And yeah, well, I mean, it, it, yeah, that's it. no question. You know, and it's just a matter of how, how you're going to limit it. So right now we limit it to people who can pay, and we deferred a lot of responsibility to insurance companies to sort of clamp down on who they're going to authorize to use certain procedures and things like that. But it doesn't guarantee that you're going to have access if you open up a um, single payer. There's going to be a different type of rationing that's happening. Yeah, I think, well, and I think to your point, I think in your uh, one paper, you mentioned that uh, in 2017, you, just the, in the city of New York, 76% of physicians accepted Medicare, which means 24%, almost a quarter of physicians don't, don't take Medicare. Well, I, I guarantee you, at least by all st- surveys, the reason people go into medicine is to help people. And the number one personal satisfier, which I say in almost every show for physicians is well over 85% is the relationship you have with their patient. And that's because you're helping people. That's why we go into medicine. I mean, I think, you know, all the other benefits are there in medicine too, but, um, but the reason we practice is to take care of people anything that thwarts us from taking care of people is very frustrating. And we look for solutions, which may or may not, you know, be good ones. Uh, and, and I think it, the reality the reason people aren't taking Medicare is not because they're, they want to drive the Mercedes, although some of them probably do, (laughs) but it is primarily because it just from the, the economic realities, it doesn't work. And so the the thing that I think scares physicians when they talk about single pair 
is that uh, not that they will be controlled by some entity telling dictating how they practice medicine, which I think is a reality that'll be uh, very frustrating for them. But the concern that suddenly they're going to have to you know be paupers and they have these and they'll have huge student loans that they have to pay off and they're now going to be dependent on someone to pay, you know pay these things off that because they can't make it with their with their money and they're not gonna be able to pay their employees to you know their nurses and med techs and billers yeah i i mean it's it's a, a reality of doing business right there, there medicaid or right? the, the, the data you met you're, you're kind enough to mention some of the medicare data i mean the the Medicaid data is even worse. Hanging you know, up like a third of oh, yeah. Medicaid patients, right? And, and, right. There's some other things and layers to that, and and and, and worthy of discussion. But some of it is you just cannot afford to do that, right? It, and and it, it, it sometimes it costs money to see a Medicaid patient in certain scenarios, and uh, you know that's a consideration for for the system. I, I think that that you know it, I was fortunate enough in residency that to have um, uh, exposure to the VA system. And, you know, yes, uh, lots of positive things from there, lots of challenges from there, just like in any other structure. But one of it is, that, you know, there's an aspect there, there's a different mentality there in the operating room um, that, you know, this is something that we're going to give care, and we're going to give a certain amount of care and a certain amount of time to a certain amount of people because that's what we're budgeted for. And if we don't use right. enough, that creates a host of problems. And if we use too much, that creates a host of problems. So, you know, those people are, are I would argue, so the, you know, very motivated to take good care of veterans. And it's a system that, that sort of works, I think, one of the closest ways to what a, a centralized, you know, single-payer healthcare system might look like. Yeah, certainly one that we'd have access to in this country. You know, I, I and there are advantages to... And I think just to the to those physicians who are who point to a single payer, I think there are advantages to that system in that it removes a lot of the variability in the system and you know what you can and can't do. But the problem is it's very rigid and uh, the ability to innovate, to do things differently, to you know see more patients or less patients, it's really not even it's not in the in the deck, and and it really is very much it's it's a more, more obvious rationing i guess it's there's always rationing that we do all the time in our time and our you know what we select for food and clothing and everything uh, but it's it's rationing that occurs outside of your control and what you what you may value and think is most important either as a clinician or as a patient and so i think that's the it's hard to imagine that that americans would be okay giving that up I mean, yeah. I can see them giving up, and not realizing that's where they're giving up. <laughs> but right, right. And maybe after the fact that buyers buyers remorse, right? But um, I don't know. I guess that's always my. I I do I do see their the value of the VA system in some ways, uh, but overall, it's. I don't find a whole lot of veterans who are super excited about. It. I had a guest on who insisted that it was really great. Um, mm-hmm. I tend to disagree. As I worked in, it was great for training. I mean, they're like the best patients, and you so much fun because you could do some. They're, they just love getting any sort of care because they have such uh, lack of care oftentimes in the VA system. So any sort of attention and care they get, they're really appreciative. Yeah, yeah. I think I think like you're hinting at in that in that. Um, I just can't. I really struggle. So you know, you have a medical student or a young physician, and you get one hundred eight thousand dollars worth of debt, and you know, twenty twenty comes along, we're gonna now have a single payer healthcare system. And just what is the government going to do when a physician does not want to participate in that? 
I, 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 I really, you know, what, what are, what are they going, what is the next course of action after that? Right. Because I think a lot of the things that I'm hearing is, is not, um, you know, not so much a two tier system, right. It, it is very much one system for everybody. And I, I, I just, you know, I just see that it's the only way that the only way to do that would be with some sort of force, some sort of law or force to essentially take away private property of individuals and force them to do something at the request of the government that they formerly were not forced to do. Uh, it, that to me is a very, very challenging logistical argument. And I just, you know, don't know what that would look like. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think, and I think, uh, you know, when you look at the, the programs, you look at the cost, it's, it is really different. If you have, if you just take the current Medicare system and say, we're just going to give that to everybody, well, you're going to have an access issue right away, right? Because right now they're already quarter, quarter of patients can't find any, or physicians don't even take it, Medicare. So to your point, you either force people to take it or you have to increase the reimbursement. If you increase the reimbursement so that it's, you know, pay that it can, you know, people can keep the lights on for their practice. Now suddenly the cost goes up tremendously and how are you going to pay for that? Are you going to pay for it with debt, just printing money? You know, what it, there's got to be some way to pay for all the resources and services that you're providing. Well, I really appreciate the discussion. It was a lot of fun. Uh, can you briefly talk about the book you wrote, which is um, Business Policy and Economics in Neurosurgery? Because I don't think sure. people probably think of business and policy or economics to associate with neurosurgery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have a unique sort of joint appointment here at South Alabama. So uh, I'm creating their complex spine uh, center, uh, an assistant professor in neurosurgery, and then assistant professor of political science. Um, at the university too. So, you know, in neurosurgery residency, everyone takes one year sort of out of the operating room. And I got a master's uh, in public administration government at the, the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. And um, when I was there, you know, I kind of saw my research going in that direction. I wanted to learn more. I want to understand how people were thinking, who made the rules about what we did and some of the higher level sort of thinking and action about this stuff. When I was there, I, I, I was just absolutely blown away by I think we as physicians are very siloed and we are absolute expert matter, you know, subject matter experts in, in anesthesia or neurosurgery or, or, or you know, medicine or infectious disease. And the people who are making these rules are, are planning on a much different wavelength. So, you know, yes. I, I just wanted to bring some of those core concepts that, that are not sort of normally in the medical school or the residency curriculum and sort of bring it into, um, you know, written format. So I think it's, um, 64 different authors, about 27 chapters, 300 pages. And what we did is said, okay, you know, you're, you're looking for a job. This is what you need to look for. And it sort of goes through what a good contract looks like, what a bad contract looks like, you know, how you're supposed to search for things. What does medical malpractice mean? And then how do you run a practice? You know, what does a work RVU? What should your account receivable look like? And, you know, real mechanics of running a practice and, and what you need to be aware of because, you know, my, my, my sort of mission with this is, I, I know for 100% that the person sitting across the desk for me that you're negotiating with or talking with or on the phone with, they know it, and this is their job. Oh, yeah, right. <laughs> and when yeah. you sign a piece of paper to the university about your intellectual property, that's probably written by someone who's an intellectual property expert or lawyer in that space, and you're just sort of <laughs> blindly signing this document that's given to you in a packet, right? So so, so how to you know, keep physicians educated about that stuff. And then the, the next part goes into policy, and what does it mean, some of these words, and like you know, the implementation of different policy aspects and 
um, you know, prior authorization. And then the last is sort of big picture economics. What is it going to look like in the future? How can I best take care of my patients in, in, in the evolving future? And sort of little nuanced differences in, in, in different types of, of economics of what we do. So the, the idea just, again, to sort of bring this stuff to the physician reader. So we got a lot of good feedback for it, and I did it with um, Dr. Nanda, who's now the uh, the um, chairman of neurosurgery at Rutgers, and then uh, Christopher Story, who um, the MD, PhD, is one of the smartest guys I know. He, he's in Nashville um, uh, working for a uh, uh, hospital system. They're setting up their stroke center. So just trying to you know bring this to as many doctors as we can. So. Yeah, it, it sounds like a book that's actually not even that specific to neurosurgery. I mean, there's certainly certain aspects with the RVUs and surgery, surgical volume and things like that. But I mean, for the most part, it could probably be applicable to just about anyone who's in residency or training to to learn more. And that's, uh, you know, I, I would occasionally go back to Iowa where I did my training and I would give a talk on, you know, what to look for when you go to private practice or academics, whatever, when you're looking for contracts and sort of what sort of practices there are out there. And I had pretty much every resident except the ones that were on call who'd attend the meeting because I remember when I was a resident, I had exactly zero hours and people telling me what, what it was like when you left your training, which um, maybe not as surprising for anesthesia as specialists as it might be for someone who would be, traditionally be expected to go to a practice by themselves like a, you know, a primary care. But they also are, I think for the most part, not given any sort of instruction as sort of how to go about in the world after you're done. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you're negotiating, you know, if you join a, a hospital system, you're negotiating with someone who their job is negotiation, and it's usually your first yeah. time doing the higher level negotiations. It's just as simple as yeah. that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for the discussion. I appreciate it. If people want to follow uh, more of what you're doing, writing, do they find you on Twitter, uh, a website, where would the best place to look? Yeah, so that's a great question. So I, um, uh, you know, my, I do a lot of uh, obviously peer-reviewed research, and then a, a lot of our feds that run uh, different you know periodicals and newspapers, and, and work as a faculty network member for FEE. So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Uh, I, I post a lot of my things I'm doing clinically and research and and, and socioeconomics uh, through that. And then we are uh, currently you know building a website for our bigger imprint here at uh, South Alabama. Okay. Well, Dr. Menger, thank you so much for your time. All right. Yeah. Thank you so much. This is, this is wonderful. Really appreciate you um, uh, having me on the show. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.